Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest issue of the Brexit and Beyond podcast brought to you by the UK in a changing Europe. And I'm absolutely chuffed to have with me today Elizabeth David Barrett, who is Professor of Government and Integrity, there's a title, at the University of Sussex. Liz, how are you doing? Great. Good morning. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. And Liz is an expert on corruption which might give you a clue as to what we're going to talk about today. Corruption is a word that has been bandied about quite a lot of late. It's been used by John Major, it's been used by a lot of commentators. What, as a social scientist, do you think corruption means? So I think corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. So it applies to people who have been trusted to do some kind of role. Often that's a public office role, but doesn't necessarily have to be it. And then they abuse that power and the powers that are associated with that role. And they abuse them not just in a a way that's kind of incompetent, but the idea of the abuse is that they're doing it because they're motivated by some kind of private gain. Private gain might be money, but it might be favours. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a sort of material gain, but some kind of personal private gain that's motivating that abuse. And is one of the problems with fingering corruption the fact that, given that definition, it depends on motive, and that's always quite hard to ascertain? Absolutely. And and there are different sorts of motive, too, and, and different degrees of motive, I think. So I think there's always an interesting distinction between, you know, did you mean to break the rules? And then with what intention did you mean to break the rules? And that's, I think, actually something that came up quite recently in that discussion of the Owen Patterson case. It was very clear that he probably agreed that he had engaged in advocacy, Mm -hmm. but he thought that he'd been doing that to right a serious wrong, that he thought that there was going to be some regulation that he needed to fix and change in the public interest. So I think that's one of the interesting things here, that it's really difficult to get to those motivations. And I suppose the other distinction it's important to make is that corruption doesn't necessarily have to be illegal, does it? Absolutely. Yeah. If corruption could only be things that were illegal, then there'd be a massive loophole because you could just change the law to make something not illegal and then it wouldn't be corrupt. Mm. And of course, a lot of really high level corruption is involved in influencing improperly the laws and the rules of the game. So I've been working for a long time on state capture. And often the way we would describe that is that that's about influencing and changing the rules of the game. But once you've changed the rules, which might mean changing the laws, then actually anything you do after that within those laws would not be illegal and so you can't have your definition of corruption relying on something being illegal because it would just leave you open to this massive loophole. Now quick plug Liz recently wrote an absolutely superb piece for Open Democracy about this very theme of state capture and I think it's worth spending what a minute just sort of figuring this out what do you mean by state capture? So for me this is a a really high level form of corruption Originally, when it was developed, it was very much developed for looking at Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union in the transition period. So it was used, for example, for looking at oligarchs in Russia. And what people saw was that there were a few of these big business interests who were able to capture the formation of policy. And that's the, that was the really critical thing at the time. Not just that they were going along and sort of paying a bribe to say, oh, you know, give me this license when I don't meet the criteria. That would be a kind of implementation of policy thing. But no, they were actually going much earlier in the process. And they were about changing the laws and rewriting the laws that would then benefit them. And, you know, as we just said, would mean that anything they did after that was legal. 
So that was the initial idea. And what I think we've seen in the last 10 years or so is a lot of state capture, which is a slightly different form. So it's often not about business interests outside that are coming in capturing the state. It's about people who are in political power, often even elected into that political power uh, in a democracy. But then once they get there, they're abusing their power in a very systematic way to change the rules of the game. Changing the constitution sometimes, changing the electoral system sometimes, so it's more difficult to oust them from power, changing the way that they um, use the legislature, so not allowing much scrutiny over laws, all of those kinds of things. And they're also often then, I think, expanding that out into two more spheres. So they're not just trying to change those rules of the game, that kind of policy formation sphere. They're also trying to control how policy is implemented often doing that by appointing a lot of loyal allies into key positions. And so then they can be used to control things like the procurement process. And they're also doing this third thing, which is disabling the checks and balances and the accountability institutions, whether that's the judiciary or the media or civil mm-hmm. society groups. Now, just to dig into this, I mean, there are two really striking things about this article, and I'll recommend listeners that you actually just get the article and read it because it's fascinating read. The first striking thing is the comparison you seem to be making. I mean, you sort of stick the UK alongside people like Bolsonaro, Modi, Erdogan. What is the case for the prosecution, if you like, that state capture is something we should be very worried about here in the UK? What has really alarmed me in the UK over the last couple of years is particularly those interventions in what I just called that kind of third sphere or third channel, trying to disable the checks and balances. And and we've seen quite a lot of that. So we've seen a lot of interference and encroachment on the independence of the judiciary. So, you know, we've seen talk about trying to politicise appointments to the judiciary. We've seen efforts to weaken judicial review of executive decisions. A couple of months ago, there was an announcement that there might be a new mechanism that would allow the government to correct court judgments, correct court judgments. I mean, these are quite major moves. Then if you look at things like the Electoral Commission, the current effort to try and remove the Electoral Commission's power to prosecute those who break election rules. We've seen a lot of, I think, encroachment on the media. There's a lot of attacks on the BBC. Also just smaller things like often the government refusing to put people on the BBC to defend their positions. I mean, these are pretty basic parts of scrutiny, actually. And then you've got all the interference with regulators or ignoring the advice of regulators. So there was the attempt to put a favoured candidate in as the head of the media regulator, Ofcom. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, ignoring the advice of the House of Lords Appointments Commission when they say, you know, you really shouldn't give a, a peerage to a Conservative Party donor, Peter Crudus. So quite a lot of these things, then, of course, ignoring the advice of the advisor on ministerial interests and Buck a couple of weeks ago uh, with trying to completely undermine the parliamentary standards disciplining process in the middle of a process, completely changing the goalposts in the middle of the game, as it were. So all of those things, I think, are are quite severe. Now, they're not yet in my kind of first two spheres, the sort of interfering with policy formation, although actually there's also worryingly 
a bit of this rushing legislation through and not giving anyone time um, mm -hmm. to really scrutinise it, which we saw, in fact, just yesterday with this police and sentencing bill. 18 yeah. pages of new law introduced right at the last minute. Yeah. Um, so this is also not good practice. But what I think is that if you're in a quite mature democracy, which we obviously are, if you wanted to capture the state, then you've got to really start with disabling the checks and balances because the checks and balances are quite strong. So that's my sort of worries I guess that I've had about the UK and my experience is also a little bit shaped by having seen what's happened in Hungary over the last decade and Hungary is somewhere that I lived for several years and that have watched its decline under Orban and I was very struck at the sort of beginning of that process there were quite a number of indications when Orban came to power in 2010 that he was doing some pretty severe examples of this state capture and yeah. yet it was very difficult to get people to believe it and to take you seriously if you said that, because there was a, a sense that, you know, Hungary's a front runner of transition. You know, we've considered it as having a consolidated democracy for years now. There's nothing to see here. And if you started to point out these things, people would come back and say, oh, you're just partisan. Everyone in Hungary is partisan and we can't trust that kind of view. And I think, well, just engage with the arguments. And I guess that's what I would say here too. Just look at all of that evidence and say, well, you know, what do you think is going on? Firstly, I would say that my kids are living testimony to the fact that being old and being mature are two very, very different things. And I wonder sometimes when we talk about the UK as a mature democracy, whether we don't just mean an old democracy, because there are still elements of surprising immaturity that you've sort of touched on. And yet in that open democracy piece, despite it all, you sort of end on quite an upbeat note, which is you sort of give us this litany of things we should be worried about. But there's a kind of happy ending, isn't there, which is the sort of system reasserts itself. Does that give you cause for comfort? It does to an extent. And actually, I did end up being quite heartened by the fact that the government did U-turn on that attack on mm -hmm. the standard system. And, you know, we're now in a situation where we're actually having, a, I think, a, a healthy debate. And the Standards Committee will put out its own report next week about what it's found in its review of the Code of Conduct with some suggestions and and the debate will continue. So yeah, I think we've ended up in a good position where people are taking a bit more notice of how we regulate the conduct of MPs, asking questions about you know, what MPs should be doing in their role and, and with their time. And I definitely don't think you know, it's too late to save the UK from state capture. But I do think it requires this kind of vigilant attitude and it requires people pushing back and saying, hang on, this is not acceptable in a liberal democracy. Okay, there's loads of questions that come out of that. I mean, I suppose the first is, do you think there is a particularly well-developed understanding of what a liberal democracy is in this country? I, mean, I often think we're very good at talking about democracy in the UK. We're particularly good at talking about sort of elective democracy. But it does strike me that quite often the term unelected is used as a pejorative. You know, who are these people getting in the way of elected people? And actually, that's a core principle of liberal democracy. And it seems to me that sometimes there's a lack of understanding of what that concept of liberal democracy really means, which is checks on majoritarian power, as far as I'm concerned. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. So I think it's all about a balance of power, essentially. You, you know, need to share power out and you know, be able to check those in power. And there's potential in the UK for the executive to be really quite strong. I mean, we know mm -hmm. that if you've got a big majority, you can get whatever you like through the Commons and have a whole host of other powers too to sort of entrench your power into the long term in terms of all the patronage powers to appoint yeah. people. So there is you know, definitely a risk here in what we all consider, of course, as you know, being an old democratic system of executive dominance. And, and that's, that's the real risk, I think. And that's why all these other checks 
mm-hmm. are, are really so important. But I, you know, I also wonder how much people think about, you know, what is the role of an MP and whether they think very much, going back to that definition of corruption, mm-hmm. if it's abuse of entrusted power for private gain, the sort of underlying assumption there is that if you're entrusted with power, you should be using it to serve the public interest. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, there isn't enough debate about what does that involve? You know, what do people go into public office to do and what can we expect of them when they're there? It always strikes me that this phrase, winner-takes-all politics, which we use about the first-past-the-post system, can be sort of interpreted in a very cynical way as, you know, once you've won, you can do what the hell you want. It's part of this inherent in the way our politics works. You get a majority, you do what you want, and you expect people to do what you want. Is that inherently problematic, do you think? Well, there's always striking a balance between you know, being able to make decisions and, and not be thwarted at every step versus there being constraints on your power and not being able to just you know, run riot and do whatever you do. And a lot of things in our democracy have really relied on conventions, I think, that you will take the independent advisor on ministerial interest. There was a convention there that if there's an allegation that a minister has breached the code of conduct, that independent advisor investigates that and then advises the prime minister on how to act. But it was in the prime minister's remit to be able to decide how to act on that. But yeah. normally people went along and said, oh, OK, that's the advice. And then the prime minister took the advice of the independent advisor. So in the case of the Putin Patel and the bullying, we saw that the prime minister decided not to take the advice of the independent advisor. He resigned as a result of that. That's one example, I think, where you know there was a strong convention. Yeah. Uh, but when someone breaches it, actually, there isn't really anyone then to come in and say, oh, well, actually, you you can't breach the convention. And I think what we saw a lot with Trump, and again, we've seen with Erdogan and, and Orban, is people breaching conventions and realising that, well, actually, it doesn't really seem to matter. I mean, it's taken the EU an extraordinarily long time to do anything about violations of the rule of law in Hungary and, and in Poland. I think the message has been for a lot of these kinds of leaders, actually, you can get away with it. Is it problematic that part of that system of checks and balances in the UK system is an institution into which prime ministers can parachute mates, donors, hairdressers, you name it? I mean, is the House of Lords part of the problem or part of the solution? Yeah, good question. Um, I think you know, it does. The way that you get into the Lords most of the time is extremely problematic, I think. So, you know, there are some great people in the Lords. It is potentially a place where you can have a lot of expertise and good scrutiny of bills. But, you know, there's a major problem with how you get in the appointment process into the House of Lords. And as we see, this is you know constantly something. And, you know, it has for many years been something where a certain amount of people seem to be able to buy their way into the Lords. Now, that seems to me completely anachronistic and out of place in a mature democracy. Do you get the sense that people care, like the people care, about these stories about corruption? That's a really good question. I think, you know, sometimes it can be a bit arcane and some of the debates around standards and things get a bit lost. But there do seem to be a few things where people don't like the sense that, you know, there's one rule for them and one rule for us and and this kind of thing. So I think people get at a deep level the idea that you shouldn't be allowed to just make the rules yourself and change the rules yourself, you should be accountable and subject to scrutiny. But of course, people have got a lot of other important things to think about. And I think people maybe don't enough make the link between, 
well, you know, if we had really good people in politics and they were really held to account, then actually we would have a much better chance of getting the good policy and outcomes that we care about, you know, so the jobs and the economy things that matter to people much more in their everyday lives. I was very struck by a tweet from Nate Silver recently, who was commenting on a poll which found that only 35% of Democratic voters think democracy is facing a major threat, whereas 71% of Republicans do. I mean, is, is this a sort of partisan issue in some way? Yeah, I think sometimes it becomes a partisan issue, and, and that's a real pity. Because, you know, we really need this to be about us all agreeing on what the, the values are of how we organise politics, how we decide what the public interest is, and all need to be together holding to account. But, you know, we've seen a lot of polarisation, I think, in the last few years. And it sort of undermines that middle space where you could argue about things in substance, because you far too often get people saying, oh, you're only saying that because you are X or Y. And then it sort of sends people back into their boxes. And that seems to me is, is quite problematic in ourselves. So, you know, there's a kind of hardware of politics, which is all those institutions and checks and balances. And then I think there's a software of politics that's equally important, which is about this kind of culture of questioning, debating, and being able to disagree and say, I disagree, but not saying I disagree because you're from that side, but I disagree with the points you've made and here's why and here are my reasons. That's a really interesting distinction, hardware and software. But actually, I suppose this leads me to a, a sort of rather obvious question, which is, are we as a profession suffering from this as well? Because more and more it's kind of, well, you're a sort of liberal academic snowflakey type. So obviously you're not going to like this government. Therefore, any cr critique you make, even if you claim it's on objective empirical grounds, is smeared by the accusation of being partisan. I mean, is, is that something you feel as an academic? I do definitely feel that kind of criticism and I think it's a real shame and I you know, wish that we could just have the engagement with the arguments. In any case, it's always difficult because if you, you happen to be criticising the government in power, you sort of look like you're criticising one party, but you know, they're the ones that are in power. So it makes sense if you're if you have an accountability role, you're inevitably going to be scrutinising their power and the exercise of power. Whether it's as academic, our sort of our analyses get devalued because it's too easy for people to say now, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They're sort of liberal, left-wing, snowflake academics. They obviously don't like Boris Johnson, so they'll do anything to undermine him. That is an argument that you, sometimes, you hear it in the Brexit context, but you hear it in all sorts of contexts. I mean, there's a lot of talk about corruption around COVID-19 contracts. Is this something that's confronting other countries as well? I mean, there's a unique moment, isn't there, where you need dramatic state intervention with eye-watering sums of money being chucked to everything from medical research to PPE equipment to whatever else it might be. Is this an issue that's bubbling away in other sort of developed countries about how the government used that cash and whether it turns out that loads of mates of the government got a lot of it? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been a lot of abuses of power in the pandemic period. And I think, you know, that's partly the urgency and the need for a lot of state intervention and spending. So that that's going to create more opportunities. But at the same time, a lot of the checks and balances were really thrown off in so not just sort of weakened, but really actually cast off because of the sense that, well, if we need to do things quickly, then we can't be subject to those checks and balances. I think you know, there's some argument for that, but at the same time, it was abused by quite a lot of people. And so all around the world, we have seen uh, leaders putting in place states of emergency and then being very reluctant to lift them up afterwards. At the same time, we've seen huge variation in how the procurement was controlled 
And there have been some really good examples where countries managed to keep it all incredibly competitive and incredibly transparent. And I think you know, those are my benchmarks when you hear people saying, oh, well, it was impossible and governments were just doing the best they could with a difficult um, task. That's only partly true because yeah. there were some good examples where countries managed to keep up competitiveness and transparency. E.g.? A lot of the Baltic states, Sweden, Ukraine's actually had fantastic transparency about its procurement. So not all countries that you know, have got loads of resources and money to throw at this, but have nonetheless you know, had really good systems in place to allow transparency around public spending. We talk a good talk, I think, around transparency, but actually transparency of the UK government is pretty flawed in many places you know there are these commitments to publish contracts within 30 days and then they're not kept up and actually again you know not much happens if you don't keep it up so you know we could be doing a lot better with our sort of data and digital infrastructure is it necessarily corrupt to think at a time of unprecedented national crisis we've got to do something and i'll bung this cash to my mate because i know them i've got their mobile number i can keep in touch with them and i can trust them because i've known them for years and they'll do this quickly and basically i am cutting corners but i'm cutting corners in the name of the greater good yeah you can see that argument of course you know one issue with that is that it could be abused people could say that when in fact you know it wasn't that they really trusted their mate mm. or knew that their mate could do a good job. But Which takes us back just... to motives again, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you were better prepared, then you could put in place framework contracts where you had already vetted a lot of suppliers and you knew who you were going to go to if you got this kind of emergency popping up. So, you know, that would be with procurement, a lot of making sure it's clean is about really planning it well so that you're not in that position when you get there. And, you know, although this was you know, a pandemic, which was, you know, to some extent, it was a bolt out of the blue, we did have a few months where we thought, well, quite likely this is coming. And I think, you know, preparations weren't made at that point. I mean, do you think you could argue that one of the reasons why there's a, there's a there might be a sort of slightly permissive attitude about political corruption is the fact that over the last couple of decades, people as a whole have just become progressively more cynical about politics. And actually, the problems date well back beyond the current regime. There's a sort of sense of they're all at it. So why should we be surprised that this lot are at it? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that is also one of the reasons why sometimes the, you know, the scandals don't cut through with the public, um, mm -hmm. because there is a sense that, well, what's the alternative? And if you, you know, there's actually quite a lot of theory in anti-corruption around this, that, you know, if you think that everyone else is going to continue behaving in the same way, yeah. then you know, it makes no sense for you to be the one who resists this and stops behaving corruptly, because you're just going to be the loser who you know, doesn't get access to those privileges and advantages, but you're not going to change the system. Your expectations about how others are going to behave are a really important thing to solve if you want to try and improve the situation here. So I think, you know, that is definitely an, an issue. I don't necessarily subscribe to it myself. I think, you know, the majority of our politicians actually do go into politics because they want to do the right thing and mm -hmm. improve the public interest. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pity that people think in that way. Yeah. And I think it's not the case. But I do think that that contributes to the whole sort of sense of malaise and, you know, there's nothing that can be done. No, no, I, I agree with you absolutely. But it is an issue, isn't it? You know, whenever they do that poll about people who are, you know, professions who are trusted let me just stress that academics are always very near the top in terms of trust everyone which is very good 
but politicians are nearly always at or near the bottom. And we laugh about that now. Politicians laugh about it. You hear politicians making speeches where it's like, oh, what a surprise, no one trusts us. But actually, it's not really a laughing matter, is it? Because if that's the case, it kind of pushes open the door for all this sort of dubious behaviour because it's what we expect. You know, what I'd really like to see is a lot more discussion about what MPs do do. I think it would be great. You know, can someone do a TV drama about the life of an MP or or something? But just give us a bit of an insight into what they're actually doing, because I think you know, most people just don't really know. You see this crazy theatre performance in Parliament. You, know, you maybe hear things about what your local constituency MP is doing, but it's a massively complex job these days. You know, mm. the, all of the constituency work is often doing really detailed, almost social work and, and helping through people navigate through a bureaucratic system. There's all the stuff in the chamber around actually you know, scrutinising and, and making laws, but then there's all that really detailed select committee work that we don't hear anything about. So show us a bit more about what you do, I think. You know, Parliament could perhaps be a bit more open and proactive about getting the message out there about what it's doing, and, and you know, maybe that would help at least show people what's going on. And we, we tend to do it only when there's a tragedy, like David Amos. We have a few days where people say politicians do good work, but most of the time, I think we all collude well. The media certainly does in, in this sort of rather negative portrayal. I think that's true. Way back in, in 2014, you wrote a really good report about revolving doors in politics. And mm-hmm. it's an issue that's quite close to my heart because it's often struck me that when we talk about corruption, we actually focus on the easy stuff and not some of the really deep-seated stuff. And it's not just politicians, it's senior civil servants as well. You walk out of a top public job with your contact book full of juicy names and addresses and you get stuck on boards, you get, uh, whatever it might be. That must surely mess up your incentives while you're doing the public service job, mustn't it? Yeah, I think this is a really important point because we've changed the way that we do government and make public policy a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, one thing is we outsource an awful lot of things that the government used to do. So a lot of public services are now provided by private companies that bid for contracts. And then, you know, you don't even know. You maybe go to the NHS and you don't know if this person that is dealing with you is employed by G4S or Serco or some big contractor or by the NHS. So there's an awful lot of outsourcing of public services. That's really blurred the line between public and private roles. It means that there are lots of companies that want insights into how Parliament works and wants to be influencing the policy agenda, what's going to be outsourced next, um, what's the government going to be spending money on? They want to know about those bidding for contracts. And there's also a lot of motivation for them to either try and influence people who are in power now mm. or to hire those people who know about how it works in public office. So that problem of the revolving door, I think, is something that's really been spread and uh, accelerated a lot by that massive outsourcing of public services. And also individual careers have changed a lot. So you now see that it's not that someone goes into the civil service for life and they stay there as this mm-hmm. you know, independent, neutral person who's an expert in, in policy making. Instead, they're quite likely to do that for a few years and then go into the private sector, maybe even come back again. People are moving from private sector roles into regulators in the same industry that they used to be working in and and vice versa. So there's just a lot of this blurring between public and private. And again, you know, going back to that definition of corruption, abuse of entrusted power for private gain. What's implicit in that is that it's fairly easy to separate what you should do in your public office role from your kind of private interests. And I think that does just get a lot more complicated in the much more complex policymaking environment we're in. 
you know, and it's not all about outsourcing. It's also just that policies become really complex. So if you need expertise on how to write a particular piece of policy, quite likely you're going to need to invite industry in to talk about that because you just can't have all of that expertise in government. But at the same time, I think, you know, we've changed the system a lot and we haven't really changed the rules to update that. I do worry sometimes about a sense that for some people, the expectation about public service is it opens the door to enormous wealth thereafter. You can capitalise on what you've learned and what you've done. And I sort of, you know, if you were, say, hypothetically a, a health minister and you had a chat with someone from a private health provider saying, well, you know, maybe down the line you could join our board. Those sorts of things are very, very hard to regulate, it strikes me, but actually possibly more pernicious than the things that we tend to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really interesting research in the US on this, which looked at the impact of that hiring people from public office into private companies. And it looked at it by looking at whether the companies that were hiring those people won more government contracts. And they found that they did, but they won them while the person that they were hiring was in office. So before they hired them, in other words. So that suggests that there might be decisions that are being distorted because people are thinking about trying to ingratiate themselves with particular companies or building up relationships so that they might get a job after they've been in public office. That's really worrying, I think, because as you say, it's really difficult to spot. How do you get any kind of insight into what's motivating those decisions when someone's in office? But it's a real risk. Look, Liz, I've been utterly rubbish because I was going to talk to you about the hackathons you've organised in Africa uh, to teach people about data. I wanted to talk to you about the work you've done with the G20 on anti-corruption. And I've droned on for so long about the UK that we've effectively run out of time. So you've got to promise that you'll come back. Sure. Yeah. But just one final question, I suppose. One of the things we're very good at in the UK is preaching to others about corruption and standards and things like that. Do you think what's been going on undermines our ability to do that? I do. And I think that's really sad um, because, you know, as someone working on on politics and standards in public office, I've spent quite a lot of time in other countries um, talking about these issues and and there was a certain respect for the British um, British civil service as seen as a really mm-hmm. you know, independent, neutral expert body um, and for Parliament as you know, one of the oldest parliaments. And of course, you know, having a fairly good reputation, the Nolan principles and, and our um, system for regulating parliamentary conduct has been actually um, copied and been a model for many countries around the world. So there was a huge um, respect, I think, for the British political system. And I do now, when I'm talking to people abroad and doing research abroad, find that that reputation is really waning and there's quite a lot of frustration and and even disappointment. I had, you know, one friend, you know, really expressed to me almost heartbreak at having invested so much of her career in looking up to the British system and then feeling really let down by things that have happened in the last few years. Liz, we've got through an enormous amount, not as much as I'd hoped, but that's entirely my fault. But thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to me. That's all right. Great to be here. Thanks very much.